Well, good morning and welcome to Fellowship. If you are a guest with us, which we're blessed to have guests each week, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. And uh, thanks to Mike for the help on uh, remembering communion. I'm realizing when you do something for 15 years and then it changes in a moment, I looked down, I didn't see the, just disappeared that they were in the same cup. So thanks for the help, and uh, for those of you who have been praying for the humbling of your pastor, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, it's good to be humbled by the Lord. Amen. So we are in the time of preaching and teaching the Word of God. We've been preaching a series. Uh, you've been hearing from uh, pretty much all of our pastors uh, on this in this series, uh, Hope in Suffering. I think it's been good to hear from uh, each of us, and uh, much, uh, we've really gained a lot uh, as we've talked about this uh, series together uh, as pastors, and, in, and then even hearing the different perspectives. So I think it's been good um, for us as we've learned more about how to approach suffering uh, biblically, and uh, today we're going to continue in that, and as we do today, we're going to be looking at suffering for Christ as victims or uh, victors. And you may ask the question right off the bat when you hear that topic, like why would we even really need to talk about this uh, specific topic um, and approach? Like why would we even need to do that uh, in, in the church? Well, let me, let me illustrate my reasons um, and then I'll explain further. Um, in, uh, and I don't, I'm going to mention some, uh, some examples and in, the, in those uh, mentioning of the examples, I don't mean in any way to... Um, uh, to, to poke fun at these things or to laugh at them, but to really just demonstrate the reality of what, the world that we're living in today. In uh, 2016, uh, a woman by the name of Sherry Papini faked her own kidnapping. She said that she was jogging. She got abducted. She had a very detailed story about being tortured by two women. She said she was chained in a closet, that she was branded by a hot metal object. But eventually, uh, they found out it was all made up. She stuck to her story for almost four years before she finally confessed the truth that she made it all up. In September of 2022, she was sentenced to 18 months in prison and was directed to make restitution of over $300,000. But the question that people were asking don't seem to have a good answer for is, why would someone fake being a victim? Well, in 2019, uh, Jesse Smollett faked a hate crime on himself. He said he was beaten late at night by two men. He said they poured bleach on him. They put a noose around his neck. They beat him while yelling racial slurs. But again, found out that was also made up, and he was found guilty of five felonies. But again, the question remained, why? And then just last month, very recently, Carly Russell, a 25-year-old, Claimed that she was abducted. She told a fake story about a toddler being on the road on a very busy street that no one else uh, could corroborate. Um, and she said she escaped and then was abducted again and then escaped again. And eventually it was found that she made it all up. She finally did admit that she did that. <clears throat> and she is now expected <clears throat> to uh, face criminal charges. But again, the question, Why? Health professionals have now documented that there has been a significant rise in patients faking 
diagnoses, specifically cancer. They're faking the symptoms of, uh, of the cancer as, as they do research on it, and then they're faking the symptoms from the chemo drugs that they're not even taking. And again, why? So the experts are coming together and they're speculating and they're concluding things like people are lonely, they crave influence, they crave attention, and in our society, they have found that victims do receive some level of celebrity status and so go that route. So what about Christians? What about believers in Jesus Christ as we've just celebrated this communion? Are we victims or are we victors? Should we pursue victimhood status or should we as believers in Jesus embrace and seek victory? So today what you're going to see as we look at, as, as we look at the text, you're going to see that even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of it, not, not just at the end of it, but in the midst of it, we are victors. And I want to encourage you in that today. And I think you're going to see that very clearly as we look further uh, at the text. So would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to go before us in the teaching of the word and not only in the teaching, but in the receiving. Lord God, we acknowledge that the things of the spirit are understood in and through the spirit. So we pray, Spirit of God, for you to illuminate your truth to each one of us here. Lord, you know every person, you know their situation, you know what they're dealing with. Lord God, we acknowledge today that there are many in this room right now who are suffering, dealing with difficulty and challenge. Our prayer, Lord, is they would find hope in you and in your truth, even as we talk about it today. Even though some of it will be challenging, may it still bring comfort and hope to us because it brings us closer to our Lord and to the truth that he has revealed. So go before us now, Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in a few minutes, I'm gonna be looking at uh, Romans 8, but uh, I'm gonna, before we get there, I wanna set it up a little bit and I wanna uh, define some things and I wanna really reveal the problem uh, before we look at the remedy uh, that, that the scripture provides. So I wanna start by, by just doing some simple uh, defining. I wanna define victim, I just wanna, do that uh, from a dictionary. Uh, so I, I just looked this up on uh, dictionary.com and a victim is a person who suffers from a destructive or injurious action or agency. Now typically this action or agency that is bringing the suffering to the victim is doing so without permission. They're not asking the victim for permission and they're not doing it with, uh, with, with the knowledge of, of the victim. They don't typically know that it's happening until it happens. So keep that definition in mind. Now what I wanna do is I wanna affirm some realities. Affirm some realities, uh, what I would call just victim realities. And first I wanna affirm this, there are innocent victims. That's, that is the result of just living in the fallen world that we live in. We, we can and we do suffer evil at the hands of others. And scripture talks about that, and it's quite clear. And I want to be clear about that so it's not misunderstood that, that I'm saying that the, the opposite of that. 
There are innocent victims. Second reality I would like to affirm is that being a victim and having a a victim mindset are not the same. You can be a victim of some sort of of crime or or, uh, just negative action without affirming the victim mindset. So the problem occurs when believers in Jesus suffer as a victim, which, which, we, which will happen because of the fallen world that we're living in. But the problem isn't that, that that happens. The problem is that we respond to that by embracing the victim, a victim mindset. So now let me try to define what I mean by that because that now needs a definition because it's a little bit different than the victim definition. So victim mindset is is this. It sees the circumstances of life as happening to them. So life isn't something that you're necessarily being a part of and just experiencing. It's actually happening to you. It's very, very personal. These circumstances are always negative, always beyond their control, and always something that they should receive sympathy for. This is, this is, if these things, as you're, as you're looking at this and thinking about it and hearing it, if this is in any way making sense to you, it's giving you an understanding of what it means to have a victim mindset. A victim mindset always thinks they deserve better, that no one has it this bad, and the desire for others then to acknowledge those very things. So it's not just that those things are what they believe, but that others are acknowledging them also. And a person who has typically embraced this is not seeking the biblical compassion that Pastor Stephen talked about last week. Because that compassion is driven towards transformation, which he talked about, right? It's transformative compassion. What what the victim mindset typically wants is, is really more cultural empathy, which is really the acknowledgement from others that they deserve better than what life is dealing them right now. So what does scripture say about all of this? Well, I want to give you two truths here, uh, and, and then we'll build off of them. The scriptures do not encourage or support a victim mindset. That's not a scriptural approach. And, and I think part of that, um, that needs to be clarified, is Jesus himself was not a victim. And he shouldn't be presented as such. This is happening more and more just as things are changing in our world and culture, even in churches. That we identify with Jesus by identifying in our victimhood. That's not true. Jesus said in Mark 10, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew why he had come. He had come to give his life. He was giving his life. Then in John 10, this is even clearer. John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus again is speaking and he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life. He is laying it down that I may take it up again. And he makes it very clear. No one takes my life from me. No one takes it. I lay it down of my own accord. And then he, and then he specifically speaks of his authority of his divine authority. I have authority to lay it down. 
and I have authority to take it up. This charge I've received from my father, he's making it very, this is crystal clear from the scripture. Jesus was not a victim. He laid down his life as a sacrifice, even though what happened to him was unjust and evil and wrong. He doesn't fit the definition. He didn't suffer from an unknown agent or an unknown action. He knew it was coming. Peter told us that he knew it was coming before the foundation of the world. It was why he was born. He gave his life willingly. No one took it from him as if Jesus was trying to keep it. You don't look at the cross and think, yeah, that's the result of what happened because Jesus just wasn't able, you know, to defend himself enough. No, he gave himself. He had authority to do whatever he wanted. He's God in the flesh, but he gave his life. Okay, so now with that background, that's more of the problem. Let's look at Romans 8. I'm going to be reading portions of the chapter, so you can follow along in your Bibles. If you have your Bible, you can just open it up to Romans 8 and follow along with me. If you don't, you can just follow along on the screen, and I'll be jumping around a little bit. Starting at verse 1, because we really need to start there. There is therefore, and and this this, uh, book is written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in Rome. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul starts with a declaration in, in this chapter. That there is no condemnation, no condemning of those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're in the first century audience and you're reading a word that that Paul used there for condemnation, you, you immediately think condemned to death. You don't just think condemnation meaning, oh, he's condemning me because he's saying things that aren't nice. You're thinking condemned to death. That's condemnation. That's the understanding. And what he's saying is there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemning to death for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a a declaration. Verse 12 now. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We don't live according to the flesh as believers. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided something. We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So here in this section, what we're seeing is that we are fellow heirs with Christ and that fellow heirs with Christ suffer with Christ. And the reason they suffer with Christ is, is in order that they may be glorified with Christ. And we certainly are looking forward to that glorification as believers, but that, that connects to, to suffering. Now notice how closely connected and tied our suffering is to the suffering of Christ. As believers, we're, we're, not, we're not suffering 
the way he did and that we're paying for other people's sins. But as believers in Christ, our suffering is connected to his. In other words, we need to, we need to understand the relationship there. Verse 18, for I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, so Paul's stating all these truths, and then he kind of stops here in verse 18 and does one of these, I'm considering something out loud for all of you to benefit, and I consider that the sufferings of this present age, living on this earth, in this world, with all that we're dealing with, those sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what, what Paul is saying is our present sufferings, which all of, us, all of us go through to some degree and level, those sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Just think about what that is saying. To even compare our suffering, what, whatever it is we're going through, to even compare it, to take it and say, this is so bad, and I'm going to compare it to the glory that is to be revealed, Paul said, you can't, even, you can't even do that because just to do it, just to make that comparison is to elevate your suffering to a place it doesn't belong. And while doing that, it devalues the glory that is coming. That's why we can't do it. That's why we can't, we, we, they're not worth comparing. See, he's not, just, he's not just saying one is better than the other. He's saying they're not worth comparing. Don't compare them. Because by comparing them, you're, you're, you're taking the glory and you're, and you're bringing it down. And you're elevating the suffering. Then he says in verse 23, which I want to jump to next, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay, so let me explain this. Here we see now that nature creation, that, that, that creation there in, uh, in, in verse uh, 23 and even further than that in this passage, it's, it's nature and humanity. So you have creation, the world, and humanity. They're awaiting redemption. Both are awaiting redemption. And what, what Paul is saying here is this is our hope. So if I were to say to you, we, this whole series is titled Hope and Suffering. What this text is saying is our hope in suffering is redemption. And that it's coming. What's coming? Well, the redemption of the world falling apart all around us and the redemption of humanity for those in Christ. And Paul writes this as comfort. This is meant to comfort us. So going back to last week, this would be compassion. You say, well, maybe I don't think it's that compassionate because it's not really helping me too much. No, this is compassion. 
He's, he's, he's giving you hope in the midst of what it is that we're going through. But then he continues on. I, I'm, I'm doing it this way because I want you to see how this builds. Because it's building. Now verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you know what that verse is saying? It's saying, how could a God who gave you his very own son, how could you ever think that God isn't going to give you what you need? How could you ever think that? That's what Paul's saying. How could you, he gave you his son and now you're thinking he's not gonna graciously give me what I need. Really? He gave you his son. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's gonna bring the charge against the elect of God? That's a reference to the, to the body, to, the, to believers, God's elect, those in Christ. Who's gonna bring a charge against them? It's God who justifies, he refers back to, to the first verse of the chapter. No, God already declared you innocent, not guilty. God is the one who justifies. Who is to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's the, remember, condemn. I told you, it's condemned to death. And Paul makes that very clear here. Christ Jesus is the one who died. He understands condemnation going along with death. More than that, explaining who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus who was raised? He's alive. He's at the right hand of God, speaking to the kingship of Christ, and is interceding for us, speaking to the priestly role of Christ. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So you see, he's building all of these things and coming to this place. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? That's what he's asking. Like, based on everything that I just told you, what God did for us, who can separate us from that love? And the love that he's speaking of here, we need to be clear, is Christ's love for us. It's his love for us. Who can separate us from that love? And then Paul, taking all of this in, if we're understanding this right, he's saying, are there circumstances in your life, are there circumstances that can come your way and cause you to believe that these circumstances must mean God does not love me? That he has somehow forgotten me. Circumstances like tribulation and trial, distress, which really could be crisis, persecution, which is opposition that comes our way. Will these things make us think we're unloved by God? That's, that's the question that, that Paul's asking. Then he, but, he, but he brings up very specific things. It says famine and nakedness. Well, what's that? That's speaking to God's provision. 
for us. Famine is food. It's, it's, it's sustenance. It's the ability to live. You know, do you need food? Do you need a roof over your head? A place to call home? Protection from the elements? If you're in need of those things, does that mean that you're not loved by God? It's the question. What about danger? This is danger. This, this would speak to actual life-threatening situations and circumstances that may come our way. If you face those, are you unloved? What about the sword? That would be direct violence towards you. If you're facing that kind of threat, are you unloved? In all of those circumstances, in all of these, are we to believe that we are nothing more than hapless victims? That's the question that he's, that, he's, that he's bringing forward. Is this what we're to believe as believers in Christ when we go through these things, these very specific things he's listed? Are we to think we're just hapless victims? Is that the answer? And we know that the answer to that is no. It's a resounding no. It's a loud no. God's victorious answer in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, it's, it's going back to the love of God for us. In all of these things, what things? What things? Because he says these things. And if you're reading the Bible, you should know what these things refer to. Well, he's going back to the suffering, the tribulation, the distress. In how many of those things? A few of them? In all of them. In all of them. We are what? Victims of random circumstance. No. That's not what we are. Are we fearful? Are we weak? Are we defenseless victims of bad luck? Are we just the victim of a, of a generational problem in our family that we have no say over and we just got to give into it? The answer to that is no. We are conquerors in Christ. In fact, Paul makes it clear that we're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors. Now, in case you don't know what that means, it means you're more than a conqueror. <laughs> Sometimes we can really complicate the Bible. So whatever you imagine a conqueror to be, you're more than that. I mean, wait a minute, you don't know what I'm picturing. Well, whatever you imagine a conqueror to be, you're more than that because that's what he's saying. You're more than conquerors. The word that Paul used there, it's actually one word that we're translating into this more than conqueror, actually means, it means overwhelming conqueror is what you are. So this would be overpowered conquering. So for the gamers, it would be an OP conqueror is what you are. You may not find that in any of the you know, the dictionaries, but that's what, is, it, that's what the text is saying. You are an overpowering conqueror 
in these situations. So step back for a minute and say, okay, pastor, are you saying then that when I face terrible circumstances like trial and tribulation and distress and persecution and lack of food and homelessness and danger and violence, are you saying that in those horrible situations, I am an overpowered conqueror? Is that really what you mean to say, pastor? And I would say, no, that's what God is saying. I'm just telling you what he said. He said it. We are more than conquerors through him, through Christ who loved us. It is only through Christ that we conquer. But it is who we are through Christ in these very situations, in these things, the things that he just described. Then after telling us that we're more than conquerors, Paul gives us what I'm referring to as victorious assurance. He's not just giving us assurance, he's giving us victorious assurance. We find that in verse 38. For I am sure, there it is, assurance. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is certain that nothing can separate us, nothing can get in the way of the love that God has for us. What he's saying is death can't do it, life can't do it, no matter what life offers you, throws at you. If angels from heaven were to come and to tell you that God doesn't love you, that can't do it. If an evil, uh, uh, evil principalities and rulers, which is really what that's referencing there, when you, when you see the rulers, they couldn't do it. They can tell you that God doesn't love you, but it's not going to stop the fact that God does. So whatever you're presently facing, what, that's, what, what Paul's telling us is that can't get in the way of God's love for you. Whatever the future holds, whatever that is, you don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know what tomorrow brings, but whatever it is, what we do know is it can't separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. Powers of the world can't separate us from God's love. The highest height, the lowest depth can't do it. In fact, nothing. Paul, Paul's thinking of things. He's like, okay, I got to cover everything. Nothing in all of creation. Because there's somebody out there who's going to find that one thing that I didn't cover. And he says, nothing in all of creation, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. So, do not allow any circumstance you're facing, any trial you're enduring, any suffering that you're experiencing, do not allow anything to cause you to doubt God's love for you. He loves you. And the evidence is in the giving of the son. And that's why he asked earlier in that chapter, if he graciously it gave you his son, why would he not graciously give you all things that you need? So if we're called to walk as victors, which we are, then you could imagine that there's great spiritual danger in embracing a victim mindset. And, it, and, and, there, and there are dangers. What are they? 
Let me give you five dangers to think about that you can kind of process even on your own. First one is this. A victim mindset will make self the center of the universe instead of the glory of God the center. You know, it's funny. I was reading about the secular studies on this. Even they came to this conclusion, not the glory of God part. They're not concerned about that. But they did come to the conclusion that those who embrace this mindset embrace a view of life with self at the center. Because everything that happens in life is evaluated by how it affects them. And what we should be as believers, when we evaluate life, here's how we evaluate life. How can God be glorified? That's a very different mindset. How can God be glorified? Second, a victim mindset weakens our faith in God while putting more faith in our feelings and our circumstances. So instead of building and strengthening faith in God, what we're doing is we're putting more faith in circumstances and feelings. Instead of trusting God and what God has promised in his word, what we're really trusting is what we see and how we feel. What we're going through. And all of those things become more important than the promises of God in his word. Even our faith in God and what he's promised to us. This text that we're reading, it's not promising an easy life. It's not, it's not saying everything's going to be easy. What it's promising is hope of redemption and the unfailing love of God. That's what it's promising. A victim mindset, third, erodes our trust in the sovereignty and the providence of God. It's going to erode our ability to trust in the fact that even in the midst of what we're going through, God is sovereign and providential. So instead of trusting that God has good purposes in mind, right, which we can read in this chapter, and I didn't go over that particular verse, but Romans 8, 28, right? has good purposes in mind through our difficulty. What happens is we lose sight of that. And all we see is the circumstance and the heartache and the pain. And what we need to do is remember the sovereignty and the providence of God. In the fact that he, he, knows, what, he knows exactly what we're going through. The difficulty. And we can trust him through it. Fourth, a victim mindset succumbs to Satan's arsenal. Bitterness, resentment, frustration, lack of contentment, unforgiving and entitled. These are things that Satan wants us to feel. Satan loves when we feel these things. Just think about that. If you're bitter, if you're frustrated, if you have resentment, if, you're, if, you, don't, if you can't get contentment, if you have unforgiveness going on in your heart, if you feel entitled, you can know those are not, that's not the fruit of the Spirit. The enemy loves that in you, and he will do whatever he can to keep that coming. Yeah, let's get more of that going on in your life. That's the fruit of our enemy. And these attitudes are precisely what this victim mindset produces in us when we embrace it. We need to, we need to resist it in the power of the Spirit. And fifth, another danger is that a victim mindset requires human saviors. And yes, I, have, uh, I made that plural because you need multiple instead of the one true savior of the world. It, 
It, it provides saviors in many forms. A victim mindset's always searching for a savior, and some people will like to be that savior. And that, that's a whole other issue. And, and again, because the problems are many, they may need many in every area of life that, that seems to be getting affected. But what this text is making clear is that in all of these circumstances, what we need is the one true Savior, Jesus. That's what we need. That's what you need. So if you've, came, you've come in here today, maybe you've never heard about Jesus, you've never heard the gospel, the world, everything around you there is going to point you to many different saviors. But there's one. His name is Jesus, and he gave his life to make sure that you would have provision for your sin to be forgiven. He is the Savior. And again, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who and what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall these circumstances cause us to find human saviors? No, may it not be so. No, in all of these things, in all of them, tribulation, distress, persecution, lack of food, no place to call home, the danger and all of it, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So we're not victims of these things. We should not accept a victim's mindset for we are victors. Overwhelming victors. And I want to encourage you to walk in and live out that victory. So you've got to make You've got to make the reality of the promise real in your life by faith. By faith. You can't, you can't just do it by, you know, by sheer effort. You've got to do it by faith in God. You've got to trust. You've got to be able to read the scripture and say, everything in my body says I shouldn't trust this. But I'm going to trust it anyway because I believe in what it says, God. So by faith. Go before me in this. And he will. He promises that he will. And that's the promise that we have. We're loved through it all. And we are more than conquerors. We're not victims. We're victors because of Jesus and what he's done. Let's pray together. Maybe you've come in here today and maybe some of what I've talked about and what you've heard today is really resonating with you. Maybe some of the things we've even talked about are things you've, without, maybe without even realizing, you've kind of adopted into your own life. I just want you to take time right now to, before God to recognize that. Say, Lord, there's some things that I've been believing that I need to reject. Just, just share that with him right now. Just in your heart, just say, Lord, I... I, I want to live and walk in the victory that you have provided. I want to walk, I want to be a victor. Help me to lean and learn and, and uh, believe deeply in the love that you have for me, the unfailing love of God that nothing can separate me from. Lord God, I pray that you would help each person who's maybe struggling with this 
to find victory in Christ and what it is that you've done. Lord God, help us to walk in the victory that you've already won for us by faith through Jesus Christ. Lord, we're just so thankful to you for what it is that you have done. Help us now to declare these things to be true. Let's declare together, Lord God, the the fact that we serve a victorious Savior. And because of that, we are more than conquerors. Go with us now, Lord, and help us to declare these things from our hearts, even in the midst of difficulty. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.